Welcome to the New Books Network. In 1927, a key event took place in the history of Western Buddhism. An unknown journalist, writer, and once opera singer named Alexandra David Neal had what was to become her most famous book, My Journey to Lhasa, published. She is the topic of this episode, and her life is objectively remarkable. A prolific author, journalist, anarchist, feminist, and rebel in many ways, Alexandra would be a key figure in the development of the Western imagination and fantasy and desire that surrounded and circled and fed the fantasy of Tibet. She was a key inspiration for later figures and in many ways set the template for the spiritual seeker heading off to the East in the 1960s. From Alan Watts to Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg and Gary Snyder, each was influenced by her books, with one in particular having an important impact, the secret oral teachings in Tibetan Buddhist sects. Her second book, Magic and Mystery in Tibet, was also a bestseller, and the book I read when I was rather young, and that in part fed my own imaginative fantasy about the mysterious place called Tibet. Her name in many ways is associated with the idea of Tibet as a land of marvels, and her books certainly did their part in creating a global understanding of Tibet as a secret mysterious place and the site of hidden knowledge and practices. Alexandra's life, therefore, is itself a combination of the real and the fantastical, the actual and the mythological. And it is hard to know to what degree Alexandra herself fed this image. She was said to have run away from home at just the age of two, and throughout her life she sought an alternative path. She read extensively about Greek philosophy, especially Stoicism, and ancient Greek and Egyptian cults, Kabbalah, Islam and Western esotericism. She even became a Freemason. And, for those who know a little bit about their Buddhist modernism, of course, she joined the Theosophical Society at one point. What's more, offhand it seems, spoke of some of the fantasies that gripped the imagination of Buddhists young and old from the 1960s onward. Whether it was the idea that she must have lived a past life in Asia, that she had an Asian mind, and uh, probably sounds racist these days, but a yellow soul. Now it must be said that in the 19th century, the late part of that when she was born, everything oriental fascinated the general public. And it makes sense when you think about the religious uncertainty which marked that generation. David Neal was a social rebel. She became a disciple of a renowned geographer, journalist, and importantly, anarchist named Elisa Recluse. She joined various radical feminist groups at the time. Her main political interest was anarchism, which apparently she remained convinced about for her entire life. Alexandra refused to adopt the social norms of her time by just becoming a lady, married, stay-at-home wife, she wanted to live an intense and an integral life. She hated the idea of being bound by the expectations of others. And for her, in many ways, anarchism was connected to the French Enlightenment, atheistic, materialistic, 
individualistic and driven by a wish to overthrow the established order, to avoid oppressive and authoritarian social structures. Needless to say, Alexandra's life would be marked by a strong commitment to her own individual freedom. She worked as an independent journalist for socialist and feminist newspapers. And as her interest in Asia grew, she wrote militant articles about Asian figures and philosophies, always in some way connected to her anarchical interests. And, well, the obsession which seems to have driven much of her life, the defense of the individual against society. Now, some might not know this, but her first writings on Asian thought were an extension of her political activism. She wrote about figures I'd never heard of before, Meiti or Motsi and Yang Chu, Yang Zhu, obscure 5th century Chinese philosophers. In fact, Alexandra saw Mozi's philosophy as an early Asian expression of socialism, and she deemed Yang Zhu a champion of individualism. And through these two figures, she, well, was seeking to claim an ancient legitimacy for political and philosophical radicalism. Now, some of the information I'm sharing with you comes from a fascinating article in Buddhist Door. It's by Marianne Adapsance, who's a French academic, who I will try and get on the podcast at some point. And she's also written about Sogyal. This text is called Who Was Alexandra David Neal? A Brief Story of a Buddhist Anarchist. And to return to some of the content of her work on Alexandra David Neal, it's interesting to note that Alexandra saw the Buddha as a radical and who was in many ways a symbol of the end of hierarchies. She saw Buddhism as the opposite of religion and of course she had a very modernist view of it. She saw it as non-ritualistic, devotional or social. She saw it as down-to-earth, individualistic, philosophical perhaps. In this way, she, too, contributed to the modern view of Buddhism. My guest today is Diane Harkey, and she has written a book about the life of Alexandra David Neal, and we touch on some of the topics, including her meeting with the 13th Dalai Lama, Panchen Lama, and various other interesting figures. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Today we're talking to Diane Harkey about her book Incognito, The Astounding Life of Alexandra David Neal. Welcome, uh, Diane. Um, Let's dive straight in and have a look at uh, who this interesting and curious woman is. How about we begin with her birth and childhood? And how were they formative in creating the Alexandra David Neal that was to come? Well, there's a lot to dive into. I mean, Alexandra Davenel, which is the way the French pronounce it, lived to 101 years of age. And she was born in 1868 uh, to a French father and a Belgian-born mother, one of whom was Protestant, one was Catholic. Her mother was Catholic, her father was Protestant, and she was an only child. She had a younger brother who died in infancy, and her mother was a rather stern Catholic woman who expected Alexandra to fall into certain patterns of life and behavior, and Alexandra, from a quite a young age, rebelled against that. She, she was 
very close to her father, who was an intellectual and um, part of the movement uh, to overthrow the French government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So she was much closer to her father than her mother. So um, she was prone to running away as a child. She ran away several times and had to be transported back. She always wanted to go beyond the garden wall. She always wanted to explore uh, other countries, other ways of thinking. Uh, she she was fascinated by much of the intellectual world around her and, her, and her, particularly her father's association with anarchists and intellectuals of various sorts. So she she was, I think, rather extraordinary for her time mm -hmm. in terms of her points of view. She she did not want to be like her mother and, you know, be a devout Catholic and, you know, live for eating biscuits and chocolates and so on. She wanted to <laughs> explore the physical and the intellectual world. So that's kind of a synopsis. That's a pretty good uh, overview. And plus you you mentioned a, a topic that relates to the second question, which is that many will be surprised to know that Neil was an anarchist throughout her life. Uh, I originally understood that she was an anarchist in her younger years and, and perhaps had left it behind, but apparently she didn't. She was also involved in journalism. Mm -hmm. uh, so how were, the, how were the two related? And why do you think she chose to be an anarchist and, and then stick to it? Well, that's a great question. I don't, I'm not sure if I have a great answer to that, but I think she, she was always an independent thinker. And I, I think she realized that there were a lot of restrictions on women in particular in the time that she was growing up and, and so on. And she, she was a very canny woman. She was a woman who looked you know, at situations and tried to find solutions that would suit her wishes. And her wish, as I say, was always to expand her mind and to look at alternate ways of thinking about life and thinking about philosophy, thinking about religion. I mean, she not only explored Protestantism, but, you know, Freemasonry, the theos theosophical movement, uh, Stoicism, you know, yoga, <laughs> you name it. She, she, I don't know if she slept much because I think she was always you know, working in her mind over things. And the journalism, um, she had contacts through her father's circle of friends and so on. So she had some some ways of getting into that field. Um, there, there's been some new information recently. Um, a French scholar, Marion uh, Dabsance, has published a couple of articles in Buddhist or uh, global and also recently uh, in 2021 released a book with a an American publisher which looks at Alexandra in that context in terms of anarchism uh, not not particularly journalism but she talks about David Nail being a social rebel uh, and a member of various radical and feminist groups and and then uh, uh, there was an Elise Reclus who was a journalist an anarchist and a pedagogue <laughs> and um, he introduced her to num a number of thinkers and she wanted to delve deeply into anarchist thoughts she wanted to uh, work a worldview around that but she was also as I say fascinated by by various forms of religion and also by the social context in which those religions arose. And in addition, she was an intrepid traveler. So somehow she melded it all together. 
And I mean, she went to the Sorbonne at a time where people, where women had to have armed guards accompany them into that institution. I mean, it was a very male-dominated uh, or institution, and um, she needed a way to to get her writing, her points of view out, and therefore the journalism avenue was a good one. And she also, for a period of time, was an opera singer, which is an unusual. <laughs> thing but she she knew how to perform on stages both intellectual and physical I mean I I don't know if that's a rather awkward way to put it but she she had a great understanding of what it took to develop not only a reputation for herself but also some kind of satisfaction as an intellect and as a spiritual seeker because she was both and that's and the strictures of I mean if you look at a lot of societal strictures, and we're seeing that, that now, of course, with things things being worked through in uh, in a certain royal family and so on. The strictures of the society that you are born into or are you know encountering as you go through life can have a big impact on your development as a person. Yeah, and she was certainly living in what we might define nowadays as very conservative times in a very conservative society. Now, you mentioned the Theosophical Society. Mm-hmm. She was also involved in uh, masonry, if I'm not yes, mistaken. Yes, for a period of time, yes. And then she goes to Buddhism. So what was her route into Buddhism, especially at a time in which very little Buddhism was to be found in the West? I think it was basically, she she was in Paris and, you know, involved in all kinds of uh, activities, but she she started to haunt the Musée Guimet. I'm, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. There was a Buddhist Buddhist statue there that she um, she really related to in some spiritual or intellectual way, I guess. And uh, she, she she once once she got an idea in her head, you know. And I think at that point she she thought about the roots of Buddha, the roots of Buddhism, the different you know kinds of Buddhism and so on. It really triggered her intellectual curiosity about Buddhism. And there were certain people in Paris at that time who were, shall we say, dabbling in a kind of Western way in Buddhist philosophy, thoughts, religion, whatever you want to call it. So she she was a skeptic all her life, and she, she did become very skeptical of some of the ways in which they were engaging with Buddhist thought. And some of, you know, I describe it in my book, you know, some of these strange communities that were about where people were, you know, uh, wafting around and not eating much food and just <laughs> involved in a kind of almost occult way with with that. So so she found it intriguing. And then once she investigated it more, I, I think she realized there was an awful lot to learn an awful lot of countries to visit, a lot of people to interview. She studied Sanskrit. She, at a certain point in her life, committed herself, after meeting with the 13th Dalai Lama and so on, to to become fluent in Tibetan. I mean, she took things to the 11th degree, shall we say, in terms of tackling subjects. Mm-hmm. Very strong character indeed. And oh, indeed. As you mentioned, she becomes an opera singer, and that takes her to the East, to Asia. And she ends up in Sikkim in northeast India. 
And the first major, let's say, Buddhist figure who will change her life, and talking about pronunciation challenges, this is one too, but I might say Sid or Sid Keong Tolku Namgyal. Can you tell us about him and why their relationship was so important? Basically, the relationship was important. I mean, if you believe what she alludes to in some of her personal letters and some of her books and so on, they were simpatico in some ways. I mean, he had been he had been educated partially in the West, and you know they they were able to converse. Mm. I believe mostly in English. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also somebody who was looking to change the constraints of Buddhism as it was being practiced at that time in his his country, which he felt were rather um, old school is not the word to use, but, you know, involved kind of drunken rituals and those kinds of things. He was somebody who wanted to reform Buddhist practices in his country. And I think that really intrigued Alexandra, that, that this man was looking at making changes in the society around him because of things he had learned or understood about Buddhism. So they really developed a very, very close relationship. And, and you know, to some reports, it was a romantic relationship. I mean, and, you know, this was after her marriage, of course. And, and you know, <laughs> so it was. it's quite an intriguing part of her past. And she was very canny, once again, about keeping certain things hidden about her past. But she... There was a lot going on there, shall we say, (laughs) in many levels. Yeah. And she also uh, met the 13th Dalai Lama, which you made reference to. Can you tell us about that as well? In her travels, she would receive word that there was a monastery in a certain place and that there was a certain scholar there and, you know, she would travel there. But in her travels, she came across him, I believe, twice in her life. I think it was the second time where he talked to her, and by this time she was becoming, you know, quite fluent in Tibetan. But he talked about to her about becoming even more fluent in Tibetan, and also he had a great deal of respect for her, as did a number of fairly high-level Buddhists, including the Panchen Lama and so on. They they began to understand that she was researching, and it was at a level of scholarship that was to be admired. She wasn't just some Westerner come in to look at the exotic parts of their lives and so on. But suffice it to say that they became um, intellectual companions, shall we say, in, in, in not in a real in-depth way, not not to the same extent as she did with Sid Kiong. Um, but I believe that there was a great respect there. And since her passing in in 1969, the uh, 14th Dalai Lama has visited uh, her, uh, it used to be called the Alexandra Dale, Nail pardon me, Foundation. It's now the Alexandra David Nail Association site in dean le France. And he, uh, he really had great, has great respect for her work as well. And so I, I think it's very rare for a Western person, in particular a woman, to to become that conversant with Buddhism and Tibetan history and all of that, but also to become so acknowledged by the uh, the the real authorities, shall we say? So. Yeah, I was thinking exactly that as, as you were speaking. Um, plus, I think again it reflects on the kind of character or strength of character that she must have had to have been able to to hold their company, yeah, and not shy away or feel herself, I don't know, not, not worthy 
to engage with such high-level figures. So uh, she must have been very determined indeed. You mentioned the Panchen Lama, but perhaps we should talk about someone else who was far more important, really, in both her travels and her life more broadly, which was uh, Yongdun. He was her travel companion and later became her adopted son. He's also interesting because he's a Lama, but he's also rather sceptical about many of the superstitions and rituals that are very common amongst Tibetans. And uh, as I was reading uh, The Journey to Lhasa again, which I read the first time when I was about 13 in my mum's house, I was surprised to just realise just how sceptical he was. And he seemed quite cynical as he carried out rituals for the Tibetans. But uh, that said, tell us, uh, tell us about their uh, relationship. How did they end up meeting in the first place? Basically, Alexandra came across uh, Yongden when he was only 15 years of age, and she needed some guide to go along with her on, on some of her travels. So he was literally offered up to be her guide. He wanted to see other countries. He was you know, interested in, in traveling, and his family was very much against it. He was only 15 he uh, was just starting out his, you know, religious life and so on. They were totally against it, but he made the decision. And I think in his later life, that became a source of almost despair for him as he sunk more and more into, into drinking, basically, and died at the age of 55 from alcoholism. Oh, dear. Okay. Which broke her heart. And as for his skepticism and so on, I, he picked up, since he was only 15 at the time, he picked up a lot of those parts of his personality, I think, from Alexander herself, because she she was skeptical about many of these things. And she was also, though, a great performer, whether it was on the opera stage or whether it was in these situations where they were encountering, you know, brigands in their travels and so on, you know, and she was pretending to be Yongden's mother and so on. So so I think it was something perhaps more learned than, than something that he brought into their relationship, because as I say, he was only 15 years old. Uh, and at some points in, in her life, and, and Alexandra admitted this, she, she basically didn't pay a lot of attention to what was happening to Yongden. And she, she thought when he disappeared to the cafes and bars and so on, that he just needed to get away from her because she was quite domineering. But it was more than that. He developed a dependency on alcohol and it, it destroyed his body. Very sad indeed. And quite different to, to her. She lived uh, to 100 and, and seemed to be doing quite well, at least you know, mentally and intellectually right up until the end. Mentally and intellectually, she was. She, her body was ridden by rheumatism and so on. But she had by that time uh, she had some very sad years after Yangden's death, but she had uh, taken on a French-Algerian secretary companion, uh, Marie-Madeleine Peyronet, who's still alive in her early 90s. And so that kind of helped to fill the void. But she actually renewed her passport at the age of 100 with thoughts of Marie-Madeleine driving this beat-up old Citroën of hers to Berlin, where there was a doctor who could treat her rheumatism. From there, they were going to fly to New York City or go to Russia. I mean, she had all of these plans and she was actually writing two books right up to within days of her death, one related to to the life of Jesus and one related to the life of Mao Zedong. <laughs> two rather desperate, disparate characters. <laughs> yes, very much yeah, so. Yeah, so she was very mentally alive up until the end, yes. Mm. 
Now, going back to her famous journey, she goes off to Tibet. Uh, the famous book that talks about it is My Journey to Lhasa. As you mentioned, she was a prolific author. She wrote many others, but I think that one still stands out as the most famous of the texts. Lhasa, in many ways, is also the Shangri-La, right? That is central to the myth that develops around her and her subsequent success as a writer. Though from reading the book, I mean, in many regards, it seems that the journey was actually far more important than the actual arrival. Would you agree with that? She wanted to do that journey, basically, because she was told she couldn't. You know, as a Western woman, she couldn't. And she knew that by traveling incognito, disguised as Yangden's mother, she would not be able to study, you know, to do the things she normally did when she went to a, fa- to a monastery or a site of Tibetan Buddhists and so on. So she knew that. But she she just despised the idea that the British, you know, colonial authorities could tell her that she couldn't do this. So, I mean, it it was a, a four-month journey. It was a harrowing journey. It's amazing that she and Yongden lived <laughs> to reach Lhasa. And they stayed there for two months. And, and she basically was, you know, incognito all of that time. They, they de- both developed a horrible influenza and, you know, and... and they only made it to Lhasa through the through the use of uh, homeopathic strychnine and things like that. I mean, it was a harrowing journey. But that book has never, to my knowledge, gone out of print. And um, all of the royalties from her works now go to the uh, municipality of Dean Leban, which is interesting. Uh, they were to go to Yongden at her death, but then, of course, uh, Yongden did not uh, survive. And so, uh, yeah, she wrote over 30, 30 books. And, uh, and actually recently, uh, I think in 2018, a fictional diary that she wrote earlier in her life was, was published as well. So, you know, her legacy continues. I mean, her life and her books and her scholarship of her legacy, I guess. I mean, she was a, in many ways a difficult, unusual woman. But once I discovered her in my early 20s, I just, you know started collecting information. I could not believe the amazing life that this woman led. And I could not believe, I mean, she's very well known. She's revered actually in, in uh, Dean Leban and other parts of France. There's a school there and, and so on, but not nearly the exposure, shall we say, say, aside from Alan Watts and some of the early Buddhists in the West who really, you know, promoted her work and, and so on not nearly as well known as I would have thought she would be with that kind of amazing life and output. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, some of the academics studying the history of Buddhist modernism have have highlighted that she was a a key figure in many ways in creating the idea, right, of Tibet, but also, in a sense, um, providing a way out of the fantasy of Tibet being just a Shangri-La, right? She was navigating that, that position between sort of fantasy and the imagination and then the reality of that place and the contradictions that lie there. No, I think that's very, very true. And I, I you know, the fact that she lived from mid-19th century to mid-20th century and did all of that, it was, it was uh, I mean, what are the odds of somebody like her coming along at that point and living through <laughs> that, you know, society, up, you know, and, and doing that? So, yeah, I, I think, you know, and, and City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco probably to this day has um, the book that Alan Watts wrote the preface to, the one, uh, excuse me, I'm just going to, the one called The Secret Oral Teachings uh, in Tibetan Buddhist Sects, and this was written with 
with Lama Yongden, and Alan Watts did the, the did the preface to this, and he basically said, I don't know if you've read this one, but he basically said at the beginning that um, her explication of Mahayana Buddhism is is the best that had ever been written, you know, and it's a very lucid explanation and something that, you know, and, and Ferlin Getty kept this this book on display in, in the window of City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco all during his life. Now, he's gone now, so I don't know if it's still there. But and as you say, at a certain period of time, a lot of people who were kind of exploring things like myself and yourself, even though I'm 75 and you're much younger, you know, the the uh, journey to Lhasa was one of those books that you, you read and you could not almost believe it. And you th- thought, well, why haven't I heard of this before? So there you go. Now, there has been some dispute about how much she actually practiced Buddhism. It does seem that she engaged in Tumo and retreat for a period, especially in the early period. What do we know about her relationship with Buddhist practice? Uh, Marianne Despence, the French scholar, said that when she talked to Marie-Madeleine Peyronet about that particular topic, Mademoiselle Peyronet said basically that Buddhism was an intellectual pursuit and that Alexander herself did not meditate or practice in those ways. But yet when you read some of uh, Alexandra's books, she does talk about meditation and uh, as you say, I mean, tumo, you know, the, the breathing technique to warm yourself up. I mean, it became something of a practical aid for her in her travels, right? Um, but she also, towards the end of her life, uh, you know, confessed to a doctor, a medical doctor that she became close to, who was interested in Tibetan Buddhism, that she, you know, practiced tantric rites, you know, sexual rites with, you know, so with Alexandra, you know, you you. It was hard sometimes, I think, to you know find the line between truth and fiction. And you know, when you live to one hundred and one years of age, I'm sure. I mean, I'm seventy five, and I'm finding things are getting a little blurry up there. And um, you know, as I said in the preface to my book, any story told twice is fiction. Said Grace Paley, an American author. So, <laughs> I, I know that they have made a point over the years in Dean Leban of bringing uh, a, a resident uh, monk, uh, Lama, you know, Tibetan Buddhist on site and having him do all kinds of things related to Tibetan Buddhist practices there. But from what I know and have read of Alexandra, she was um, a Buddhist intellectual. She was somebody who looked at the framework of Buddhism and its beliefs in an intellectual structure I think, though, at several points in her life, she she basically did feel terribly guilty about some of the ways in which she she treated people with less than compassion, and that she therefore felt she wasn't being a good Buddhist almost. So I th- it's a complicated question and a complicated answer that isn't an answer. So No, no, that's okay. In fact, um, part of my own research was vague. So I, I, I think it's, as you suggested earlier, it's difficult to answer in any final or concrete way because she does switch between imagination and creative license and then actually reporting as as faithfully as she can uh, the events as they happen. So who knows? I mean, maybe that's just part of the mystery uh, she leaves behind. Now, feminism is a word that's often brought up in relationship to her. 
You mentioned in response to one of the first questions that she was fiercely independent and she refused to be enclosed in a kind of social existence that would mean you know, being a passive good wife. In what other ways would you say uh, she was a feminist or, or feminism is a key topic when, when thinking about her and her life? You know, as I, as I mentioned before, um, the impetus for her trip to, to Lhasa was basically the fact that she was told as a Western woman, well, not specifically she, but in general, the, the guidelines were, you know, Western travelers could not go there. I mean, there had been several women who had tried before, one of whom was a Canadian and died in, on the trek and so on. So I think she looked, she looked at things like that and um, attending the Sorbonne and, and not falling into the little wife role, wife role that her mother did as as challenges to her as a free thinking woman she 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 found ways around some of the structures that that were put in place to keep women in a certain role in in society and i mean even her marriage you know some some commentators have said well you know she married him so that he could support her financially and and he did of course provide financial support to a certain point and then uh, she got, you know, support from the French government. She also started, you know, making money from the books and publications. And he was, he was her agent. Her husband was her agent for that. And it was a very unconventional marriage, to say the least. And um, but when he died, and and they had corresponded all through the years when she, you know, they got married. And a few months later, she's off for 14 years in Asia traveling and so on. They, they, there were copious letters back and forth between them. And when he died, she, she was very, very sad for a fair period of time. And she called him, she called Philip her only friend. And uh, the letters, she did save all of those letters. And at one point, she decided that Marie Madeleine should get rid of some of them. And some of them were tossed. And who knows, because it was a feisty relationship at times, particularly when she talked about bringing Yongden back to, to live in France and all of that. And Philip was uh, not very happy about that. So, yes, I think she she was um, ahead of her times in terms of her feminism. And I also think that uh, she was in some ways, as I said, a very difficult woman. And it was very difficult, I think, perhaps because of her upbringing, who knows why, to form strong emotional bonds with with other people, be they male or female. But I think in the 10 years, for example, that uh, Marie Madeleine stayed with her towards the end of her life, she became they they became very good friends. And she was very fond of, of this young woman. And um, so but she did. She did like the fact that uh, Madeleine committed her life to her, which I found kind of interesting because um, but she, but she also did pay for Madeline's mother and sister to come from Algeria and live close to them in Dean Lebanon. So so there were a lot of contradictions in her as a person and a lot of things I think that she may have, you know, regretted at certain points. But she forged on as an intellectual, as a feminist, as a you know somebody who broke outside of the standard ways of operating for women of her time. And she loved it when when you. <laughs> When in later life, uh, you know, the hippies started arriving in Dean Leban to see her because she she really got a you know an impression then that Alan Watts and people in the West 
West had spread her name and her books and whatever around. And so she would always, you know, question them before she would allow any of them to talk to her individually about what they knew and if they were serious about their investigations of her travels and life and, you know, Buddhist points of view. So, so um, yeah, I, I, I related to her very much as a strong, strong woman and thinker. Another figure who's very famous, who was a big fan and promoted her work, uh, was Ram Das. I did not know that, Matthew. <laughs> Yeah, I'd heard him mention her in one of his talks. I, I grew up listening to his talks because my my mother used to love playing them. Um, but what, what about what about you, Diane? I mean, you you wrote this book. Uh, you discover this woman, or or you you discover her when you're younger. You must come back to her and read other works too. In putting together this work, what would you say was the biggest takeaway for you, or how did the process change you if it did? Oh, well, the process changed me a lot actually, uh, because. I am by training um, a librarian and, and also a teacher. I've been retired since 2008. But what it did for me, I think, was show me that even though a person can be caught in a society that doesn't seem to be a society in which they could flourish, that you can flourish in a society that seems repressive and oppressive. And, I mean, I researched Alexandra, you know, I started hearing about her in my 20s and um uh, I'll, I'll say this right now matthew i'm not a practicing buddhist i have been very interested in buddhism for many years but it my research on alexandra got me to looking around you know in edmonton alberta canada of all places and seeing if there were any practitioners here and there there's a tibetan meditation society gadden samton ling there are, uh, you know, students there, and I have gone to, to a meditation or two there. And there was a lively community here that I had knew nothing about. I mean, the city now is 1.2 million. And through them, I, did, I started a pen pal uh, arrangement with a Tibetan Buddhist monk who lived at Sarajay Monastery in Bailakupi, India, and his students. And that has enriched my life and my points of view on everything, I think, for over 25 years now. He's not, no longer at that monastery. He's up in uh, northern India, very close to the Tibetan-Chinese border, or whatever they call that border now. But so for me, it kind of made me look around and think, well, you know, even in my particular city in Canada, there are a lot of fascinating things going on in the religious sphere and in the you know intellectual sphere that I had no awareness of as a younger person. I mean, my my knowledge was all gained through books. There was nobody in in my circle of friends and family that that engaged in any way with with the things I was reading about and, and with the things that Alexander got into. And so you know, through that research on Alexander, I even started looking at things like. Um, Theosophy in that period of time and then you know my mother's an English war bride and she was raised by her grandmother who was a spiritualist in London and who who came to perform in the music halls of Boston at the age of 16 I, I did family research and then I thought you know nanny who came to live with us towards the end of her life was interesting in that way because she would commune with her dead cat and things and we would think well this is just a very odd lady <laughs> But that was the context. I mean, that, you know, period of time when Nanny was growing up, that was in the air, you know, not only in, in England, but in North America. So it, it kind of 
broadened my horizons in terms of the way the human mind works through things. And, you know, we always considered that, that Nanny was, was somehow doolally or something, but no, it's not, that's not the case. She was just <laughs> exploring different ways of communicating with people and cats who had died. <laughs> you know, so, so <laughs> as you do, <laughs> yes, yes. And even the way my book yeah. came to be, Matthew, I, I, it was an unexpected pleasure. I mean, I was 68 years old when it was published and, so so my life has been impacted greatly, is what I'm saying. That's in keeping with the entire theme of the conversation, right? Because however rational, intellectual Alexandra David Neal uh, might have been, her life in, in many ways was quite magical. And the book we've been talking about today, for those who'd like to get themselves a copy, is Incognito, The Astounding Life, and certainly is one, of Alexandra David Neal. And as mentioned also, it's on Sumeru Press. And there you go. So, Diane, thank you for coming on today and talking to us uh, about your book and about this, well, fascinating woman. Thank you for the opportunity, Matthew. Very good talking to you. I enjoyed the conversation. And enjoy the snow up there in Canada. <laughs> oh, yes, I delight That's... in it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. <laughs> This is me, Matthew O'Connell, and sponsor of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. That's right, it's my podcast and I'm sponsoring it. Hmm, is that even possible? Well, who cares? I'm doing it. And this is really a reminder that I coach, mentor, and teach folks the weird and wonderful ways of the practicing life. Drawing on person-centered counseling, life coaching, critical dialogue, and years of teaching and group facilitation, I coach and mentor folks looking for an alternative to the current market of self-help, spirituality, and religion. Much of what I have specialized in touches on themes that have been explored in the podcast. So for those new to this podcast and this kind of approach to coaching, let me fill you in a little bit. I use post-traditional tools and tools taken from the world of non-philosophy and non-Buddhism and my own experimentations with both. Most of the clients that come to me through this podcast are current or ex-Buddhists, ex-spiritual types, and those cautiously approaching practice with a view to keep their intelligence and critical faculties intact. If you are an intellectual hiding your desire for something along the lines of a spiritual practice, yes, the scary quotes are out there, don't be shy, come on out of the closet and be proud. We'll find a way to make it work that you don't need to be ashamed of. Seriously, I mean it. I work with traditional coaching and counselling methods too, as well as meditation. And for the more adventurous folks, I can offer shamanic tools well, they're really neo-shamanic tools and concepts and something akin to a practice rooted in a reconfiguration of our relationship with the natural world, minus the romanticism. I offer a sliding scale, so whatever your economic status, if you're genuinely interested in upping your game, money should not be an obstacle. Wherever you find yourself in your life right now, if you wish to refine your relationship with practice and take a leap into a deeper relationship with the practicing life, 
do get in touch. The first session is non-committal and won't cost you a dime, a euro, a cent or a penny. We'll decide together whether it's going to be a potentially good working relationship. And if so, you can commit to a cycle of practice sessions. I currently do most of those online through Skype or Zoom. Although if you happen to be in Italy or somewhere near the border, you might even come down for a session in person. You'll find all you need in a contact form at imperfectbuddha.com or you can get in touch through imperfectbuddha at outlook.com.